good day. I'm your host, Scott Jordan, and it's time to set the water to boil. This is Tea Talk Asia. This week at the Asian World Center, we meet with Nathan Peterson, a doctoral candidate in art history at the University of Iowa, who has been working at the prestigious Tianjin University in China. We will be talking with him about his research and art in China. But first, while we let our tea steep, we will begin the show as we began all shows by turning our eye to the east with a look at Asia and the headlines for the week of March 24th, 2014. We begin this week in Beijing, China, where family members from the missing flight MH370 are gathering outside the Malaysian embassy following the announcement by the Malaysian Prime Minister that the aircraft had been located in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Perth, Australia. The gathered are relatives of the 153 Chinese on board MH370, which was carrying a total of 239 people. The flight went missing two weeks ago after departing from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. The assembled Chinese outside of the Malaysian embassy demand further disclosure of what evidence the prime minister is making these claims from and asks for further cooperation from Malaysia with the Chinese government on the rescue efforts currently being undertaken. Debris from the flight had been sighted off the western coast of Australia, but no confirmations had been made that this debris is part of MH370. The multinational search effort is being undertaken by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and was continued after a slight delay Tuesday due to hazardous conditions. In India, leader of the anti-corruption political party, the Aam Admi Party, Arvind Kirjriwal, is set to announce his run for prime minister on Tuesday in the city of Varanasi. Varanasi is located in Uttar Pradesh, which is considered India's major swing state since it holds the largest number of seats in parliament. Kedriwal has large support from both Hindu and Muslim populations throughout India. He will be running against incumbent Narendra Modi of the Bharatiya Janata Party during the general election which occurs in nine phases that will run between April 7th and May 12th. Last week, during a nuclear summit at The Hague, U.S. President Barack Obama and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe agreed to have over 100 kilos of enriched uranium and plutonium handed over from Japan to the U.S. for disposal. The expected nuclear material being handed over is enough to fuel approximately 50 nuclear weapons. This news comes after a history of Japanese resistance towards the handing over of materials, which has resulted in a significant pledge towards nuclear disarmament. Chinese officials still express concern over Japanese nuclear aspirations, especially in light of Japan's announcement to open a new nuclear reprocessing plant in the north of the country that would be capable of producing the amount that is being handed over to the U.S. in the coming days. Japan has a long-standing policy not to develop nuclear weapons and is bound to that by their constitution. A gunman and a suicide bomber have made attacks against the Afghan Election Commission in Kabul on Tuesday, which has resulted in two reported police fatalities and two more injured at least. Further reports have not been announced. The Taliban has claimed responsibility for the attacks and announced that it will be making stands against the upcoming national elections that will take place on April 5th. Lastly in the headlines, we look to the World Health Organization, who announced this week that in 2012, 7 million people died as a result of air pollution throughout the world. This makes for one in eight global deaths being a result of air pollution. Six million of the deaths were reported out of East and Southeast Asia. The World Health Organization is warning that the world needs cleaner air policies. That was a look at Asia and the headlines for this week. And before we begin our discussion with Nathan Peterson, a few words from the Asian World Center. Creighton University is now enrolling students in our new master's degree program in East-West Studies. Designed to provide students a unique, immersive, and international experience, 
in the U.S. and Asia. This program bridges Eastern and Western concepts, including the arts, business, conflict resolution, and technology, to enable you to take a leadership role in today's global community. To apply online, visit ews.creighton.edu. Creighton University, for the greater. On Tuesday, April 8th, 13 artists from China will be coming to present the Making of Beauty Purple Sand Teapots and Hand Fan Painting Exhibition. The opening reception will take place at noon on April 8th in the Scott Student Center Ballroom, and some of their teapots and hand fan paintings will be presented throughout the week at Scott Student Center. For more information, please visit the Asian World Center website. This week, we have the privilege to sit at the Asian World Center with Nathan Peterson, a doctoral candidate in art history at the University of Iowa. Born in south-central Nebraska, Peterson attended Creighton University in the early 2000s, earning a degree in art history. He then went to the University of Iowa, where he received his master's degree also in art history. From there, he became interested in East Asian studies, specifically in China and Japan. His most recent work has been in the contemporary art of China, including the artist Ai Weiwei, and northern Japan, particularly in response to the tsunami of 2011. Currently, Peterson is teaching at China's Tianjin University and completing his second master's degree in Chinese while finishing his dissertation to earn his doctorate from the University of Iowa. Without further ado, we welcome Mr. Nathan Peterson. So to kind of get started, what um, are you doing your doctoral work in right now? Yes, I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa. My major is contemporary art with an emphasis on Chinese art, contemporary Chinese art. What kind of, what got you into that oh, field, got, I suppose, yes. yeah? Well, art has always been part of my life that I could understand the world. I, can, I could escape uh, farm life by looking at uh, Van Gogh painting or see an early Picasso painting and I felt a connection to the world so for me I see art as a means of communicating with the world. All right and then what drew you towards uh, Asian art in particular? Asian art in particular happened about because of my interaction with uh, Professor uh, Jin Mei Yuan that her influence in her Buddhism class and in her Chinese philosophy class compelled me to understand the world differently and I feel with her fostering and then the extensive studying I've done at Iowa I was ready to undertake a full immersion in Asian culture. Can you kind of explain where you've I guess kind of been in Asia during your studies and and maybe give us an idea of what your experience has been thus far? Indeed in 2007 I received a scholarship to attend a joint program with a sister university that Iowa has called Tianjin University of Technology. And that faculty is tremendous. They did a great job, although my Chinese definitely was lacking at that time. Uh, they saw a talent and they fostered it as well there. And in 2008, after the Olympics, I spent a year in China. And in 2010, I was back there 2012 I returned mm -hmm. and I'm currently still residing there so that's mm -hmm. my time in China particularly around the city of Tianjin because I want to be close to Beijing but I don't sure. want to uh, live in Beijing sure but as far as other places in China where I've traveled I've gone almost everywhere possible I've been to Tibet to Xinjiang province in far western China I've been to Qinghai province um, I've been to Gansu, so I've seen the Dunhuang 
grottos, if you are familiar with those. Um, and I've also been as far south as uh, Xiamen in Fujian province, so I've seen the Formosa Strait. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most unappealing places I've ever seen in China was Shanghai. I've always felt that was such a boring place. Um, the greatest places I've ever seen in China were always the small, out-of-the-way areas where true hospitality, I feel, exists. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as other places in Asia, Japan. So I started going to Japan in 2009. And I just kept going incrementally either as uh, during my travels to China, or sometimes even on my own for vacation, but I kept picking up research topics in Japan. The tsunami hit in 2011, and I felt like I had a unique situation where I should be going to Japan and helping communities because I can speak some Japanese. And I felt like there was a, a moment where the international community can do good for uh, people affected by disaster. Mm -hmm. All right. And what uh, what mediums of art are kind of your specialty, or is it, or is it particularly a period well, of art, or what I study in particular? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, I study contemporary art, so that is roughly um, post World War II onto right. contemporary times, but specifically focusing from artistic practice from the 1960s until today. Sure. And um, the themes I study a lot include what people would consider non-traditional aspects of art. When people think of art ordinarily, they think of painting, sculpture, drawings. Um, I deal with uh, performance art and uh, installation works. So um, the a new form, new forms of art, I mean to say that uh, really elude a lot of people because art when it's created at the moment is always hard to understand mm -hmm. it's easier to understand art when there's a buffer zone of a few decades between sure. you and the art object mm -hmm. and i feel like some of my responsibility is since art has been such a great benefit to my life i need to help people understand the current moment and what what is happening in, in art communities across the world but particularly in beijing Right. And you were there during the Olympics, you had said? I arrived at the end of the Olympics, but I tried to okay. avoid the Olympic traffic. Okay. I, w I was in Beijing before and after the Olympics, before, during, and after, I mean to say. Okay, okay. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, during that, because there was such a change in that city Tremendous. happening. Yes, and um, particularly with architecture and obviously the Olympic stadiums mm -hmm. construction, uh, was there some fascination for you in those areas? Even within the three years before, during, and after mm -hmm. that I was there of, of the Olympics, there were neighborhoods that I saw in 2007 that no longer resembled um, their former selves in 2008, 2009. The area of Sanlitur in uh, the local dialect, mm -hmm. um, that is now a very cosmopolitan neighborhood, and they pushed out a lot of people to make uh, some of the most stellar architectural feats of the city of Beijing. Mm -hmm. So those changes are immense. Right. Since you're dealing with more contemporary art, um, in that period, especially when we're dealing with Chinese art, we did have the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. which um, I guess kind of saw an end to a lot of the older types of art, and there was a lot of destruction that happened during that period of time. Indeed. Has, uh, has that really 
does that come up a lot in your studies as, as a period that either um, you see it, it's hard to see uh, to find things that have you know come from before that period and also as an inspiration for what was to come in the 80s and 90s in Chinese art. Are you speaking of art from the 1920s, 30s? Yes. So 20th century art before and after the Cultural Revolution. Right. And just for the audience, uh, mm-hmm. the Cultural Revolution occurred from 1966 to 1976. Right. Uh, so there is a renewed interest in what they would call nationalist art. So the art produced after the fall of the last dynasty, the Qin dynasty, mm-hmm. in 1911-1912. So from that period of the, ni- of the teens mm-hmm. to 1949 would be the nationalist period of art. Some of those things did not survive. Some of them did because of the growing connectivity between China and the United States and Europe. So some of those cultural artifacts were taken outside of the country and they survived the purging of the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. And some of them did not survive. But collectors now are finding a renewed interest in nationalist art, that they're willing to look at it and buy it for a premium price. All right. And so what what are, uh, I guess, some of the bigger movements that are occurring right now in Chinese art? Or is, that, is that, do you have like a, is your study more focused on anything in particular? Well, I would say that at the current moment, there seems to be a lack of anything we could call a movement or anything we could add an ISM, an ism, mm-hmm. towards. But um, after the Cultural Revolution ended in 76, there was a period known as scar art, where it was okay to complain, to criticize, to speak out against the horrors of the Cultural Revolution. And that period lasted from about 76 to about 81. And then in the 1980s, there uh, came a new era of Chinese artists, a new generation of people who were born during the Cultural Revolution or were very young. They started looking for other things, and there are a lot of small groups, unofficial groups, that emerged, especially in 1979, 1980. But the most pivotal movement was the 85 movement, um, where a lot of painters and sculptors gained prominence by adopting a, a... a Warholian aspect to their art, so mm-hmm. they made Chinese art pop. Okay. Um, so those are the movements um, within recent history, but to define something from the 90s or from the early 2000s, you know, I think we're still way too close to the historical moment to right. call anything an ism. Maybe to kind of shift the conversation towards um, what you've kind of talked with mm-hmm. some of the classes about earlier is about Ai Weiwei in particular, and what is what is fascinating about this figure in, in particular? Ai Weiwei first struck me as an odd name. So when I was doing my early doctoral studies, my advisor and I came up with a list of contemporary Chinese artists who should have more. Uh, coverage in in Western scholarship. Ai Weiwei was one of them. Um, Why I was interested in him as well is because his father went to Iowa during the 1980s, right after China opened up. So um, his family is familiar with Western discourse, but also, if I may return to his name, if you can read Chinese characters, Weiwei means not yet or Mm -hmm. soon to be as in uh, one of the characters is used for future, Wei Lai um, is one way to call the future. So that has that Wei part, Ai Weiwei. And 
And I've always just found that to be a very poetic and intriguing name. So I kept following his work. I met him before he was arrested a few times, and I've met him after he's been released. And I think that he's a highly admirable person, and everything he does, I feel like I have to, you know, fulfill his expectations right. sometimes. So when I went to Japan, I felt like um, this would be something that Weiwei would do in mm. his own right. And I think that if he were to advise me on anything about that, he would probably say the same thing. I, so if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what was so, uh, I guess, different about him? Um, was it the fact that he, I mean, obviously some of the statements he had made mm -hmm. would, would set him apart, but did he take art in a different direction for Chinese art? He did, quite drastically. So um, many Chinese artists are highly dexterous. They are just masters of the brush. And if you think of... Uh, culture, its history runs back thousands of years, and brush writing was their primary form of uh, literacy, so of course they're going to have a lot more dexterous people with brushes, but there was no spirit involved in it, so we had a whole, all these vacuous paintings during that time that really lacked any emotion, anything that captured spirit of the times, and I think what he did be after he spent uh, from 1980 to 1993 in the United States, he came back and he took the artistic practices of New York, of Western Europe, and he applied them into a Chinese context. Mm -hmm. And by using that context, he was able to change the direction, whereas the 85 movement, as I said earlier, focused on Warholian aspects mm -hmm. of uh, art. Uh, Ai Weiwei takes... Uh, another approach, and it's the Duchampian approach, the Dadaist approach to art, and he adds so many elements into Chinese culture. And he really enhanced Chinese art through mm -hmm. that infusion. Right. And so what do you, uh, do you see what Ai Weiwei has done as he's kind of made his mark? Do you still, should we be expecting more from him? Uh, in the in the coming days, and maybe has has he has he changed or altered not only art but perhaps Chinese society to a certain extent? He has a I, studio I that's very productive, so he's right. still producing a lot of art. If you're asking, is he going to produce more art? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Are you asking, is he going to give more criticism to the government? Is is that part of the question as well? I mean, to some extent, I, I'm not so much. I'm I'm wondering if if yes, he will uh, continue criticizing the government. Um, but will he also continue, uh, or, or is he pretty well set in the style he's set in? Do, do, would you foresee, I guess, any any more, I guess, radical change uh, coming from him? An art historian would say that he is in his mature period, and I would okay. agree with that. So, um, he, he, as far as any major left turns, you won't see that in his art and work. But of course, a lot of his art is jarring, so sure. you you will still be alarmed at a few things. Um, but you should take that alarm and then reflect upon it to see what values you hold yourself and as such. Right. And so what do you kind of see for the future of China? And this can be either from like an artistic perspective or even from just um, somewhat of a maybe an outside looking in, but or even inside looking out because you had been there for a significant period of time. Indeed. Um, can you give any kinds of insight on what you think uh, – 
can be expected from China in the future? Well, if you're asking me from a, a collector standpoint, if I were to advise someone buying Chinese art, I would say now is the time to look at Chinese ceramics again because I think that uh, the price that they're asking for them and the value of the ceramic tradition in China, mm -hmm. right? Country named after right. porcelain yeah. in the Western discourse. And so I think that would be something for a collector to consider, whereas, you know, studio paintings, easel paintings, that, that might be a little bit over uh, overvaluated because mm -hmm. um, the art market in China is even more uh, opaque than New York art galleries and okay. the way that they price things. So I think that a lot of paintings are too valued, but if you're asking for the direction of Chinese society as someone who's lived there substantially, uh, I feel like the greater push for uh, freedom of press, for judicial independence, those are two things that I think are fundamental for China moving forward. Okay. Well, that's all I have for you, so thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Before I leave you to your week, I want to leave you with a little something extra. Word for thought. Mr. Peterson's research is centered around one man, an artist from China named Ai Weiwei. Ai was born in Beijing, China in 1957 at the peak of Chairman Mao Zedong's era of controlling the People's Republic of China. His father, Ai Ching, was a prolific poet in his time, and when Ai Weiwei was young, his father was sent to a labor camp in western China as a result of the anti-rightist movement. His family lived there until the death of Mao Zedong and the end of the Cultural Revolution when Ai Weiwei's family returned to Beijing. Ai Weiwei lived and studied in New York City throughout the 80s and early 90s. Some of his early works reflected the chaotic times, such as the AIDS epidemic and the student movements back in China. Ai Weiwei really broke out as he helped to design the stadiums for Beijing's Olympic Games in 2008. Ai Weiwei was quickly made out to be a political dissenter as he attempted to document the 2008 earthquake and the government corruption that led to the unnecessary deaths of school children in Shenzhuan province. Since then, he has constantly been opposed to the Chinese Communist Party, finding a way around China's rigid internet controls. Currently, Ai Weiwei lives in Beijing under house arrest. You can learn more about him in the documentary Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, and he is also very active on Twitter. That is all we have for you this week. For more information on the Asian World Center or for more episodes of Tea Talk Asia, please visit www.creighton.edu slash Asia. From all of us here at the Asian World Center, we wish you a most happy today and an even better tomorrow. This has been Tea Talk Asia, looking east from west. I'm Scott Jordan. Thank you very much for listening. Tea Talk Asia is a production of the Asian World Center at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm your host, Scott Jordan, with executive producer Maorong Zhang, managing producer Andrew Trapp, and Voices on Asia producer and host Cindy Workman. For more information, please visit creighton.edu slash awc.